Uh, this, this is really the sweetest, sweetest part of everything to me is uh, talking about trust in Christ. So I think we'll have some people leak in, but we'll go ahead. Let's pray as we get started. Lord, again, we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus, Jesus Christ, which, Lord, is, is your making yourself known to us through Christ, making known your glory, making known the glory of your love and grace in Christ. And, Lord, uh, in him, providing for us a rescue from sin and a fellowship with you that would extend forever. We thank you for such love and such desire on your part to have us for yourself as your bride forever. Lord, bless us with uh, joy and trust as we consider Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, you'll notice the question's very specific. Uh, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Okay. Now, we don't mean by that as... Uh, like we call ourselves children of God or even the angels are called sons of God in a, a certain way. But we mean uh, son of God for us. Son of God equals God the Son. Okay. And this just goes back to, Trinity, to uh, talking about the Trinity, that the, the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you remember... I drew a little illustration to try to indicate that each one of these uh, persons shares the same being. So he is God, he is God, he is God. There's only one God, but they have a relationship within that uh, one God. So given that structure, we say, do you believe in this Son of God who came in the flesh as Jesus Christ? <clears throat> so notice the importance of it in 1 John 4 right there. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So there's no option about this. Only those who believe that he is the Son of God does God abide in them. And the alternative would be true if we do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and entrust ourselves to Him as the Son of God, then we don't have fellowship with God. And then again, later in First uh, John 5, 5, Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? No one else does overcome the world. Everyone else succumbs to the world and is a part of the world. So this is essential. And so John, uh, in his gospel, at the end, gives the reason that he wrote this gospel. He says, therefore, many other signs uh, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So to have eternal life, we must believe that Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. There's no option to that. We can't believe that he's just a good man. Can't believe that he's the greatest creature that ever lived. You know, that God made him, as the Jehovah's Witness say, that he was just the greatest of all creation. And, uh, but he wasn't God. He was just the greatest of all creation. We'd say, 
No, that, that's not what the scripture says. We must believe him as the son of God. So um, if we go back to the beginning, see there's, there's John uh, at the end, John 20, saying you must believe that he's the son of God. And you would assume then that at the beginning, okay, chapter 1, that he's going to begin on the thesis, so to speak. Like the whole of the book, he says, I've written so that you would believe that he's the Son of God. So for the whole of the book of John, he's trying to show, demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. That he's not simply man, but he is God come in the flesh. Okay, He is truly God come in the flesh. So that's why, as we've already talked about this, at the very beginning of John... He, he says these uh, words, and, and recall, he's, he's putting it in the language of Genesis 1. We're to think of Genesis 1, where it says, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. John starts, In the beginning. And as we're thinking that he's going to say, God made the heavens and the earth, he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And later he says in verse 14, the Word became flesh. So right at the beginning, he says this, this being who is the Word is with God, and He is God. And he says He's the creator of all things. So right in the first verses, this Word, whoever that is, is with God, is God, and created all things. And then when he gets to verse 14, he says, That word became flesh. Okay, and we beheld his glory. So, just so you see right at the beginning, this, this idea of uh, showing that he's the Son of God. And also you have at the end, Thomas saying, uh, My Lord and my God of Jesus. And that's to encourage us to have the same confession of Jesus Christ. You're my Lord and you're my God. That's what Thomas said. We're encouraged to say the same thing. And here in chapter 20, he says, I've written these things so that you'll believe he's the Son of God. And you can see how he begins by saying, this one was God with God, created all things, and he became flesh. That's who he is, God the Son. Uh, So... The, uh, the, and, and by the way, this term word, I have in the box just a little explanation as to why he uses that term, the word. And it's because he, ex, he perfectly expresses the Father to us. In his very person, he shows us who the Father uh, is. Uh, in John 1.18, he actually says he explains the Father to us, or he's the exposition of the Father. And that's why John, uh, Jesus can say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So that's why he, uh, you know, that's why he's, he uh, is the Word, uh, the expression of God, the very revealing of God. Now, you'll recall that he says, I've told you all these signs and miracles, but he calls them signs, works of power, so that you can believe he's the Son of God. Well, after stating this, 
In the very next chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, after he turns the water to wine, we read this on page 49 at the top of the page. Uh, He manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Well, you see, he had said the word became flesh. We saw his glory. And then in the very first historical event of uh, water to wine, it says we saw his glory. The disciples saw his glory. So that glory of the one who came from the father, that glory was displayed in the wine. And he says, I've told you all of these signs, beginning with water and the wine, through to the resurrection of Lazarus, which is kind of the whole scope of what John deals with, beginning with changing the water to wine and ending with Lazarus uh, in terms of his, his great signs. Uh, he is revealing the glory of the one who was God and who was with God. And he ends by saying, this is what the whole treatment, this is why I did this, so that you would believe that he is the Son of God. So, um, as I say uh, there on page 49, this is the major theme in John. Jesus shows who he is, his glory, through his signs, and people are called to believe that he's the Son of God. In fact, it creates a crisis. Will people believe or will they not? That's the major drama of John. But it creates a crisis for you and me as well. Are you going to believe that he's the Son of God? Am I going to believe that he's the Son of God? Uh, And that's why, you know, again, John says, I've written these things so that you would believe that he's the Son of God. And you can see a little bit of the drama. I've just mentioned a few things right there, like John 6, uh, where... Well, what what they're called to believe in, Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The one that has come from God, you're to believe in him. Or John 11, where uh, Mary says, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. And that's the very same language as he uses here at the end of John. I've I've written these things so that you'll know that he's Messiah, Son of God. And here in chapter 11, 27, Mary says, I believe that you're Messiah, Son of God. So you you get that pattern uh, that John's trying to set him before us in that way. And even notice the best known passage in all of John, John 3.16, has to do with that same thing. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But notice verses 17 and 18. God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So... We're, whoever believes in him as the Son of God, those are the ones who have eternal life. Um, and nothing less than the Son of God. Now, on page 50, I try to give some of the reasons why this is so important for us. First of all, it would be blasphemy and idolatry to put your trust in any mere human being. Okay? 
not to mention stupid, <laughs> okay? Uh, to put your trust in anything other than God. Only God can rescue us. And if He's not the Son of God, if He's not God the Son, He's not worthy of our trust, period. We cannot put ourselves in the hands of anyone but God Himself. It's interesting how many times in Isaiah he says, There is no Savior but me. I'm God and I'm, on, I'm one. I'm unique. There's no other Savior but me. And here Jesus says, I'm the Savior and I'm here to save you. Uh, he can be claiming nothing else than God to say that he is the Savior. So no, no human being, no angel can save us from sin. No creature can save us in, from our sin. As Psalm 146 says, says, don't trust in princes and mortal man in whom there's no salvation. And the curse of Jeremiah is on someone who would trust in mankind. So, um, Scripture forbids us to trust in any but God. So, if Jesus is not God, He does not deserve our trust. We must confess that He is God and put ourselves in His hands as God the Son. Secondly... It's essential to believe this because we believe in one God, not many gods. Christ must be the God, not a God, somehow alongside of the Father who's another God. Uh, the Lord our God is one, as Deuteronomy 6.4 says. But as we've said, there's a relationship within this God. But I believe in the one God, okay? And when I believe in Jesus, I'm believing in the one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but manifested in Christ. Um, then thirdly, it's critical for us to understand this so that we understand the atonement. Um, we've, we've talked about how there's this relationship. That's, I just discussed that at the bottom of page 15, that there's a relationship within God. But look at the top of page 51. Um, the whole idea that the Father sent the Son, okay, and then the Son was on the cross and the Father made him sin and condemned him and judged him. The whole romance of the Bible depends on the fact that the Father sent his only begotten Son to die for us. Uh, none other than the Son that was hit, that that they had uh, and that they had a relationship even before the world began as he says there in John 17 you loved me before the foundation of the world and so the very love expressed is the love of God who would give even that son whom he loved before the foundation of the world he would give that son to die and to bear our sin so the whole glory and beauty of the Scripture depends upon our confessing that He is nothing other than the Son of God. Um, it's in this way that the Father can pour out His wrath upon the Son. It's in this way that the Son, being the God-man, could bear the wrath of the Father for us. Uh, being man, He could stand in our place. Being God, He could truly bear up and swallow death uh, and take it away from us. <clears throat> so um, that's the that's the importance then of that first part of that phrase that we believe in Him as the Son of God. And what's encouraging about that is that 
we, we trust one who is all-powerful, who really can take us out of our sin, who really can remove the condemnation of sin, who really can remove the power of sin from us. Um, he, is, he is infinite in his capacity to save us because he is nothing less than God. So it should encourage us. There's nothing, no obstacle that can stand in his way from rescuing us. Um, no matter how weak we are, no matter how sinful, no matter how helpless, he can save us because he is none other than God. Well, we also have in that phrase uh, that question that he's the son of God and he's the savior of sinners. And this is probably the most well-known aspect of Christ, you'll just see in the bottom of 51, all those statements. Matthew 1, when the angel speaks to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. Or the angels to the shepherds in Luke 2, there's been born for you a Savior who's uh, Messiah, the Lord. Uh, Jesus himself says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Or as John says in John 4 there, uh, this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Um, the people in, uh, in Samir- the Samaritans are, are speaking there. Um, so the words save and Savior, the box down there, First Timothy, Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Now, the question, of course, is what does he save us from? And this is richer than we generally think and, and encouraging, very encouraging, the extent of his salvation. We, we naturally think he saves us from hell and judgment, which he does, but that includes a whole lot. And, and it's, it's very encouraging for us to think about the different things that he does to save us. Um, notice um, at the top of 52, he specifically saves us from our sins and he saves sinners. And he, that's, that's the only reason he came, as he says there in Luke 5, uh, I didn't come for those who are well. He said, those who are well don't need a physician, those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, so Savior of sinners is specifically it. And, and I've used this illustration before, but um, you know, if, if somebody is really, really poor and you're offering to help them uh, because they are so poor and they argue to you, but you don't realize how poor I am. And you say, well, I know, but that's why I want to help you. That's why I want to give something to you, to help you. Yeah, but you don't realize I have nothing. I know that's why I want to give you something. But you don't understand. I have terrible debts. I I can't pay my way out of it. I know that's why I want to help you. So the more the person might argue how poor he is, the more it convinces you and the more it proves That's why I'm here. If you had a lot of money, I wouldn't be here to help you. It's because you're so poor that I want to help you. And so when we argue, when we're really convicted of our sin, we can think, well, I'm just too evil for Christ to save me. I've I've done too many things. I've thought so many things. How could he rescue me? And, of course, 
Jesus says, but that's what I came for. I came for sinners. And the worse your sin is, the more glorified I am to save you. The extent of your sin matters nothing. It just simply shows what a great Savior I am. And so very encouraging to us that uh, that's why that, the, though the music may put some of us off, uh, especially if we've heard it 16 times at the end of an uh, invitation at a church, like I grew up in. Uh, But just as I am is a great statement because I don't fix myself. I can't fix myself. I can't rectify the problem. I can't improve myself. I just have to come like a person who's just coming out of uh, the filth of a swamp and he just has to come to be cleaned and he can't clean himself. And that's how we come to him as sinners. And the encouraging thing is he came to save sinners. didn't come to save people who think they're righteous. He came only to save sinners. So to argue that you're a sinner is to put yourself, you know, right in the line of where he, who he came to save. And that's a very, very encouraging thing. But here I've just listed some of the different aspects of his salvation. Uh, one central, probably the, the core of everything, is that he restores us to fellowship with God. It says, He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, dying in our place, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. Okay? So, to be brought into intimacy with God. Same thing said there in 2 Corinthians 5, reconciling us, removing the barrier, removing the condemnation that was on us and the alienation that we had before God so that we're restored to God's favor in fellowship with him under his absolute favor. To be restored to his fellowship means that we have his smile now in Christ, Uh, the permanent smile of God upon our life, permanent favor of God upon our life. As a part of this, he makes us children of God. That's Pretty well-known teaching, uh, the statements made there in Galatians, John, and Romans uh, about how we're made children. Well, that's just another indication of the favor. Uh, The favor is such that we belong to family. We have the inheritance with Him. He will only do us good as we seek to do good to our own children. God perfectly does good to His children. And it, it speaks of intimacy, too. Even in a king situation, everybody else may tremble to come before the king and not know when they come before the king, but the child just runs into the king's presence, you know. And so we're admitted into his presence as his children. And as a part of both of those, number three there, he removes the guilt of our sin and gives us a righteous standing before God. We've talked about this uh, some before, but just so we have it pictured again. Here's Christ and his perfect righteousness before God. And when we are joined to Christ, we're considered being in Christ and then connected to united with his righteousness so that God sees you and me in Christ, united to Christ. So whatever standing Christ has with the Father his standing, and his favor, so we have. And to put it this way, uh, Christ and us, our sin is put on 
Christ's side of the ledger, okay? And then his righteousness is put on our side of the ledger. So that Christ receives the condemnation for our sin and we receive the reward for his righteousness. Condemnation. So, uh, through this exchange, so to speak, that he becomes sin for us so that we can have be the righteousness of God in him, we are in God's favor. But here, this is, this is the way it's pictured in terms of his suffering and taking away our sin and our uh, having his righteousness uh, put to our account. But here's the way it's pictured kind of in Scripture of our being united to Christ so that his righteousness is ours. So this is all apart, though, together. We're restored to the fellowship of God. We have, we're the children of God. We have the sin and we, we're forgiven of our sin and we stand in his righteousness um, and forgiveness. But you could, you could take all of that together, number one, two, and three. Uh, forgiven, restored, we're made children. Fourthly, part of his salvation is that he gives us the spirit of God. Uh, we become the temple uh, of the spirit. And this means that the fruit of the Spirit becomes a part of our life in Galatians chapter uh, 5. Um, so that there can be change in our life. A, a new life is given to us in, uh, through the Holy Spirit. So salvation is the guilt of sin is removed. But also now the power of sin is removed. So as we think about his salvation, we think he saves me from being condemned by my sin so that I'm restored to the favor of God and I'm a child of God. I'm adopted. But he doesn't just leave me, so to speak, in my sin. He saves me from the actual uh, practice of sin. That's a part of his salvation, a vital part of his salvation. And so, four, he gives us his spirit. Number five, he rescues us from a life dominated by sin. Uh, we've talked about this before, but notice in 1 Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. It doesn't say so that we might be forgiven, but it says so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So see, he bore our sins so that we would have a new life. We would die to our old life of, of the practice of sin. We'd live a new life of righteousness. These other verses speak of the same thing, so that we trust in Him uh, to deliver us from the practice of sin, to deliver us from the habits of sin, the thought patterns of sin, the tendencies of sin, the, the, uh, the way we've coped with life in a sinful way so that we can be released uh, from our sinful practices. And then number six... He restores us not only to himself, but he restores us to each other. He creates a new fellowship with God's people through his uh, salvation. So, uh, salvation, you know, is this way between us. Uh, so, he restores us to God, but he restores us to uh, each other, okay? 
this way. So salvation is this way and this way. And we're made one new people in Him. And we're considered in Scripture a new temple or a new house of God. We're considered one in that regard. So, uh, if people are really living out the Christian life and they're living out their new life in Christ, then there tends to be more and more ability to reconcile to one another, to forgive one another, to uh, live in kindness and goodness and grace toward one another and, and provide a new uh, island of the new humanity living in love uh, with one another. Um, and so our salvation must show itself in relationship. Our salvation shows itself in our relationships. He saves us from the way we mistreat one another and hurt one another. That's what he saves us from. And he delivers us from being dominated by sinful ways we deal with one another. So a glorious part of his salvation uh, is that we are rescued from hurting one another more and more. And then... The last three more or less took, look to the future. Um, first three talk about a restored relationship. The second three about the changes that occur in our lives and in our fellowship. And the last three look to the future. He saves us from the coming wrath that is coming on this world. Um, it's called the wrath to come there in First Thessalonians. Um, he says in Romans 5, we will be saved from the wrath of God that's, that's coming. <clears throat> so this, this wrath that's going to fall just like the flood was going to destroy the world and there was only one place of salvation on the ark. So wrath of, of God is going to engulf the world and the only place of safety is in Christ. He saves us from that wrath because he, he bore that wrath for us. He bore the wrath of God for us. So the coming wrath of God will not fall on us. It's already fallen on Christ but on behalf of his people. And that's why we can look to the coming of Christ and the end of the world and judgment itself with no fear. Um, notice how John puts it. This is a very important passage in 1 John chapter 3. I'm sorry, chapter 4. He says, uh, after talking about how we've been convinced of the love of God in Christ... He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 18. That is a love that's perfected uh, an understanding of God's love. This, This love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Um, And so he says, we have confidence for the day of judgment. So... If, if we doubt the love of God for us in Christ, then we fear judgment. But if that love is perfected in us and if we're convinced of his love, then we think he loves me in Christ. He accepts me in Christ. I'm righteous in Christ. I've been restored in Christ. I have no fear of punishment. I have no fear of judgment. And so the believer can look to that with, with great confidence, as John says. Um, and he urges us there, obviously, not to have that fear. Uh, uh, because the final wrath is not going to fall on us. It's fallen on Christ. And in that final day, number eight, he changes our bodies. 
and makes us perfect. Uh, several passages there that talk about how in the coming of Christ, our, our very bodies will be transformed. Uh, and so our bodies will become like Christ's body and all of our sin will finally be removed and will be made perfect and glorious in our holiness at that point. Um, it's amazing to me that Paul, can, that the writer Jude can say, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Think of me standing before God's perfect holiness and glory, and I'll be blameless and I'll have great joy in his presence. You'd think, how could I, how could I stand in his presence? How could I be there without being judged? But it, it indicates I will be made perfect. And even in his perfection, he'll be able to smile because he will have made me through and through uh, perfect and glorious like his own son. And then uh, in the final number nine there, he recreates the heavens and earth and gives us an e- eternal inheritance. So he not only changes us, but he changes the whole world. He changes our whole environment. Uh, that we have forever. And on page 55, you can see uh, some of the statements about this, which says in Colossians 1, he will reconcile all things to himself. That's underlined. Or in Acts 3, he speaks of the restoration of all things. Or in Romans 8, the creation itself will be set free. So this is part of our inheritance. It's part of our having all things as the last passage in 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that the whole world becomes the inheritance of God's people. Um, And it's hard to imagine what that glorious world is like. As I gave the illustration several weeks ago in uh, preaching, if this world is a broken world, if this world has been crippled by sin, you think, and how beautiful and glorious it is yet. Um, if, this is the, if this is creation in the wheelchair, what's it going to be like when creation gets up and starts running? You know? So that, it's amazing. We can't, we can't fathom what that would be. But if you think of a God with unlimited power using all of his capacity to bring good to his people, well, there's no limit to it in the transformation he'll bring about in us and in the transformation he'll bring about in the whole world. So, and then when you think Christ suffered to bring this about for us, that he suffered ultimate judgment and condemnation for sinners to bring them these benefits, it does go beyond imagination that he would do these things for us. Well, next week we'll come to page 56 and we'll talk about the uh, rest, receiving and resting on him. A very important uh, aspect of this that um, I think is uh, where many in the church uh, fail to enjoy the benefits of trusting in Christ because we still are holding on to our own righteousness And we still won't fully put ourselves in his hands and rest in his goodness. And so we want to encourage you to rest completely in his goodness, rest completely in the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's what that will be about in page 56. Are there any questions or comments from anybody? Good mark. You got a good mark where you remember? 
I think I'll remember where we are. Okay. I think we'll remember where we are next time. Page 56. Any other questions? Or All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. We praise you that you uh, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you poured yourself out. You became a servant. You became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross, in order to rescue us from our sin. How could it be that God would uh, come and take that upon himself and bear the very punishment that we deserve because of our hatred against you? We thank you, Lord, in your grace and mercy that you came to save sinners. Not that you would look around and say, well, who's doing the best job and take them, but you came to rescue sinners. You came to rescue us right where we are, just as we are, and and change us. We thank you for the extent of your salvation, that you restore us to fellowship, and you make us children, and you, you... put us in your favor and you transform our lives and you transform our relationships. And in the future, you'll transform us completely top to bottom and even transform this world. All of these acts of salvation for your people. We praise you and ask that you would give us uh, a growing faith and rest in all that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.